You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. The passage this evening will be in 1 Chronicles chapter 13. 1 Chronicles chapter 13 in the Old Testament. No, while you're turning there, I'd just like to thank Pastor personally for the opportunity to preach and uh, to stand before you tonight. He actually gave me the option to lead singing or preach, and considering how last time didn't go over so well, here I am. So, uh, but anyways, we are in First Chronicles chapter 13. We're going to be reading the whole chapter, so I'll begin us in verse number one. It says, And David consulted with the captains of thousands and hundreds, and with every leader, David said unto all the congregation of Israel, If it seem good unto you, and that it be of the Lord our God, let us send abroad unto our brethren everywhere that are left in all the land of Israel, and with them also to the priests and Levites which are in the cities and suburbs, that they may gather themselves unto us. And let us bring again the ark of our God to us, for we inquired not at it in the days of Saul. And all the congregation said that they would do so, for the thing was right in the eyes of all the people. So David gathered all Israel together from Shihor of Egypt, even unto the entering of Hamath, to bring the ark of God from Kirjath-Jerim. And David went up and all Israel to Baala, that is to Kirjath-Jerim, which belonged to Judah, to bring up thence the ark of God of the Lord, that dwelleth between the cherubims, whose name is called on it. And they carried the ark of God in a new cart out of the house of Abinadab, and Uzzah and Ahio drave the cart. And David and all Israel played before God with all their might, and with singing, and with harps, and with psalteries, and with timbrels, and with cymbals, and with trumpets. And when they came into the threshing floor of Kidon, Uzzah put forth his hand to hold the ark, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and he smote him, because he put his hand to the ark, and there he died before God. And David was displeased, because the Lord had made a breach upon Uzzah, wherefore that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of God that day, saying, How shall I bring the ark of God home to me? So David brought not the ark home to himself to the city of David, but carried it into the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of God remained with the family of Obed-Edom in his house three months. And the Lord blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that he had. May the Lord bless the reading of his word tonight as you may be seated. And just reading this passage tonight, you can almost think of, it's, it's really an understatement to, to call this story an upset. You know, at, le- at the very least, there's a complete and, and utter shock here that, that's mixed with confusion following the events of this story. It was quite an upset, if we could call it that. It's almost like the term upset itself denotes when, when difficulty gets to us the most, and that, that's when things are up, when things are good. And I'm sure we've all experienced what an upset feels like and the resulting the confusion that comes from, you know, having the crutches kicked out from under you and uh, whenever you least expect it. And even more devastating than that is when our intents and actions uh, of when we're trying to do our best to do the right thing and pursue a goal, perhaps, that we believe God's going to honor, only for in the midst of the numerous successes, we hit that spot that seems like a pothole and all the forward progress just kind of stops. Sometimes it really is beyond our control, the things that that happen and knock the wind out of us and put us in that low place. Um, But what about when the upset seems as though it comes from God himself? 
When in the midst of you doing what you believe is God's will for you and your family and, and you're trying to move forward in, in your life and you have every intention to seek God's presence and blessings in your life, but then you get stopped dead in your tracks and all of your effort tends to seem fruitless. You know, you can ask, how could this happen if I'm doing what's right? You know, is, is God against me? Is, 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 is he doing this out of spite to me? And, or is it possible that somewhere along the line, What's happened is that a subtle danger went without notice, and it's a danger that was so small, we often ourselves miss it completely. And it seems so natural, yet it sets us up for an unexpected upset nearly every time. And I think in our passage here, David found himself in quite a similar situation. You know, imagine, imagine with me what this upset was like for David, you know, the blow that it was to this forward progress that he was trying to make. And there have been a lot of events that, that built up to this very moment that we come across here in Scripture, yet all at once, everything seems to come to a screeching halt. And, and in my sermons, I usually try to provide a little bit of background detail because, uh, you know, historical context is helpful in understanding a passage, but I might be giving a little bit more this evening. But what I really want to try to delve into tonight, if you'll use your imaginations with me, is try to put yourself in David's position and understand his emotional context as all of these events play out. So in, in the recent events leading up to this, David had just been officially appointed king over the nation of Israel. So far, far earlier on, back in the Old Testament in 1 Samuel, uh, David had been anointed to be the next king of Israel, but that was a promise of something that was to come in God's timing. It was not a go-ahead in that particular moment for him to go and take the kingdom from the current king, King Saul. He was to wait on the Lord's timing, and as we know, he did. Uh, to borrow from Pastor's principle that he's been mentioning in his sermons these last couple of weeks, it was a principle of process and product. The, the product was to eventually become the king of Israel. That process was to submit to the rule that David had over him at the current time. And David achieved that product, as we all know, but that was definitely not an easy process. So shortly after being anointed by Samuel, David defeated the giant. He defeats Goliath. And uh, is brought before King Saul, and David, David is, has favor in the eyes of Saul and in the eyes of the kingdom, and is given a position of, of honor in the king's house. He's able to stay with him and to serve him at his right hand. He, he has a relationship with the king's son, Jonathan, that's closer than even most brothers would probably have. He's, he's set over the men who go out to war on the king's behalf. He plays a harp in the presence of the king, and he's completely and totally loyal in his service to the Lord's anointed. And then one day the king, to whom he is totally loyal, attempts to kill him twice. And Saul's jealousy over David, over time it becomes worse and worse, and David eventually gets run out of his own home. He gets run out of his own city. And eventually he's pursued enough through the countryside that he's chased out of the country entirely. And David himself has to, he has to seek refuge in Gath among enemies, and he feigns madness in order to escape out of their hands. He he escapes to Moab and Tequilah, and he lives in caves, and he lives in forests, and he's, he's, he's a nomad. He even lives among the Philistines, who were his most despised enemies at the time, and even, the, even naturally, they don't trust him at all as he seeks refuge there. And there were times that David was mistreated by his own countrymen, who very short years before he had given his, his own life and safety for in order to keep invaders from coming in. He'd protected them and given that to them, and they, they turn around and treat him this way. You know, he could never rest easy or, or let down his guard when spies at every moment of every day were keeping Saul posted 
on his, his progress as he made his way on the run. And there were times when, when David had to wrestle with both keeping his hand off of Saul, who was still at that time the Lord's anointed, yet trying to keep his men under control who were tired of living this way. And even, even specific times when they were living in the city of Ziklag and they were out to battle and when they come back, the Amalekites had set on their home and completely burned everything down and took absolutely everything that they had. Uh, the event in 1 Samuel, record, 1 Samuel 30 records it to have caused them to weep until they had had no more power to weep. And even when David was honorable and spared Saul's life, not only once but twice, in, to respect the Lord and, and that, the person who he had, again, he had anointed to be king, you know, it still took a very, very long time for things to get better. And it was during these times of, of emotional roller coasters and the ups and downs that Saul, that David wrote many of the Psalms, which we'd be familiar with, in the times when, when those caves were dark, and they were lonely, and the tears were frequent, and they seemingly didn't end. In the times where he could do nothing except cry out to God in a bitter mixture of both faith and confidence in God, yet simultaneous anguish of soul. And after Saul's death, David, David was eventually crowned king of Judah in Hebron, but according to 1 Kings 2.11, it took seven more years before David would finally become the king over a unified Israel in Jerusalem. And from the time David was anointed, perhaps where many would consider him to be between the ages of, of 10 to 15 or so, which means this, was, this, this whole process that we've walked through was nearly 15 years of perhaps some of the most dif- one of the most difficult lives that anyone has ever had to live. And, so, and it, again, this is the beginning of this process through, toward the product that he had been promised. So at the beginning, he knew what was at the end, but all of these events transpired, but he made it. And it is after this great triumph and fulfillment of God's promise that we find ourselves in the current passage here. So David is finally king. He's, he's just established himself in the city of Jerusalem. Everything that God had promised him up until this point was finally beginning to come to pass. All the pain and the struggles that led up to this moment all become worth the way. And in his first great act as the newly appointed king over all of Israel, it is David's desire that the people gather themselves together with him and that they bring the ark of the Lord to Jerusalem to set the tone for the kingdom that he desired to have. In other words, David had his eye on a particular product. I'll state it plainly that that this was obviously not a bad thing that David wanted, and to say the contrary, it was actually a very good thing. I think we would all agree to that. The very fact that David's first act as king was to bring the ark to a place of central focus tells us a few things about David's desire for what he wanted his personal rule over Israel to look like. First off, he wanted God's presence. And although that's, that's not directly stated by him or, or by the text, it's clear that David wanted the presence of the Lord, and that's implied heavily in his reign simply by what the ark represented. The Ark of the Covenant is called, even in our passage in verse number six, the Ark of God the Lord that dwelleth between the cherubims whose name is called on it. And although we know God is an omnipresent God, he is everywhere at all times, the, the, the Ark was designed and intended at that time to be the very seat upon which the glory of God came down in the days of Moses when the priests were, would offer sacrifices in the innermost parts of the temple. So where the Ark was, of an absolute certainty, so was God. So therefore, then, by bringing the ark to Jerusalem, the presence of God would be with David and his house at all times. Next we find he wanted God's blessings. 
Again, this is not so much directly stated in the passage, and it ties pretty heavily into him desiring God's presence, but it can be pretty well reasoned out that God's blessings would be the intended result of having God's presence. At the very end of the passage in verse 14, actually, we see that as the ark was carried over to the side into the house of of Obed-Edom, the result of simply having the ark there blessed Obed-Edom and his house and all that he had. The ark was in possession of the men who lived in Kirjath-Jerim before it moved, so I would consider it likely that when the ark was there, they also were extremely blessed in, in the things that they did. I don't think that's unreasonable to assume. I think then it would be safe to say that the idea of the presence, the presence of the ark being tied to the presence of God's blessings, this wasn't an unfamiliar concept to David. So he sought the ark to bring the blessings of God to the center of the kingdom so that in his rule in the entire kingdom of Israel, could thrive under the blessings of God as he led them forward. On a, slightly, on a slightly different note from that, another thing David wanted in this pursuit of this particular product is he wanted to lead the people instead of rule them. That desire, the fact that David consulted the people to ensure that they were behind him immediately distinguished him from the king previous. You know, Saul often acted and did things unadvised as the king, and the consequences of his actions often came at the expense of the people over which he ruled. David understood very early that a kingdom would only thrive under God's presence if it was in the hearts and intentions of all the people to follow the Lord together and not just the king. By inquiring of the people, David secured their support and motivated them to pursue God of their own accord alongside him. Needless to say, it was a product that God would honor and bless. Verse 2, David presents the plan to bring the ark under the condition that it be of God, which seems to indicate that at the very center, at the very core Of his motives, there was a sincere desire to please God. The beginning of the king known as the man after God's own heart. And everything was in order to proceed. So, next we find that David identified a process to to acquire this desired product. In verse 1 and 2, it says, And David consulted with the captains of thousands and hundreds and with every leader. And David said unto all the congregation of Israel, If it seem good unto you, and that it be of the Lord our God, Let us send abroad unto our brethren everywhere that are left in all the land of Israel, and with them also to the priests and the Levites, which are in their cities and suburbs, that they may gather themselves unto us. David David consults the leaders of Israel and sends word to all the people that the ark has suffered neglect under the reign of Saul and that he wishes to see these changed. So he recognized that if the presence and blessings of God upon his rule and upon the people were important, then the approach to moving the ark ought to be done in such a way that highlighted its importance. So, so what he does is he ends up gathering up all the people with the intent to put on perhaps what was the largest procession that was to occur in his reign uh, in, in this bringing the ark from Kirjathjearim to Jerusalem. It was, a, it was to be a nationwide event uh, that recognized the importance of God to the nation of Israel and highlighted God's role and position that he was intended to serve in the function of the nation of Israel. It was going to be the single greatest thing that this generation had ever seen. I can't highlight enough that this was going to be a huge deal. The process, seeming to be good, was then put into motion. So so the ark is taken, and and they place it on a brand new cart uh, so that it could be kept off the ground and transported safely. And and surrounding it is is an innumerable multitude of people uh, who are rejoicing over over this prospect of bringing the ark up. And verse 8 tells us that it was the king himself and all Israel who played before God with all their might singing and, and playing harps again with timbrels and with cymbals and, and, and with trumpets. And it's, it's an instrumental procession so grand in scale 
that it was done with all their might. So, and, and I, I just can't help but think myself for a moment there. Could you imagine what that would be like to play an instrument to the point that you get exhausted? To be so invested in this particular celebration or activity that at the end of it, you're actually exhausted. And I can't help but think of, you know, maybe pastor being up here and leading singings. Could you imagine what, how weird a service would be if we came in and Miss Sherilyn and Miss Kath played so hard that they passed out and pastor had to go sit down before he preached? because everyone was so out of breath. And even if he could speak right away, we'd all be so exhausted that we probably would miss the first half of the message. I mean, playing with all your might. Amen. You know, it was this very moment, this very moment was what they were waiting for. This, this was the crowning achievement of all those 15 years prior, that hardship, that when things were finally looking up, this is what they were waiting for, the ark being taken to the center of the kingdom and it being established. And the biggest celebration in Israel up until this point was underway, and then the unexpected happens. That process gets upset and halted. In verse number 9, the procession, it says, comes to the threshing floor of Kaidon, and as they make their way forward, the oxen seem to stumble over. Uh, it doesn't really specify. It could have been a pothole, a stone, a stick, each other. But uh, I don't know. But it rocked the cart. It rocked the cart enough that... In, in Uzzah's mind, he, he saw a risk of the ark risking falling over or perhaps being damaged. So he did what I really think anyone would have done reasonably with something of that level of importance. You want to protect that. So he reaches out his hand to stop it. However, things take quite a turn at his evident good intentions. Verse number 10 tells us that the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah and he smote him because he put his hand to the ark and there he died before the Lord. Now imagine the effect that this probably had on this whole procession that's going on right now. Yeah, you know, an entire nation is, is holding this celebration, this long processional march from, from this place where the ark was to, to the capital of Jerusalem, and then the very God that they're praising strikes a man dead in the middle of all of them. You know, I can't, I can't, imagine, I can't imagine how that was for things to change in, in a moment just like that. You know, the procession of countless people comes to a complete and total stop. You know, things change in an instant, and just like that, everything ceases. There's no more instruments playing. Thousands of people, no more. Nobody says a word. Nobody's singing. Nobody's talking. And I'm sure if you looked out at that crowd, there'd probably be these mixed expressions of confusion and fear as they all, you know, gather around the body of this man who was just struck dead by the very God that they were worshiping. Their king was at a loss. So what happened? You know, at that particular moment in time, it seemed like everything was going so well. God, God had finally unified the nation. God had, had finally brought David to the place that he'd promised him to. And the people were all behind him as king, and, and they all sought to bring the presence of God to the center of the nation. And they put together this grand procession in order to give God the worship and the recognition that he wholly and completely deserved. And things were supposed to be looking up from here. So why is it that the very God they were seeking after was against them? How could this happen? God struck a man dead for laying his hands upon that which he should not have touched. But what was the true purpose behind Uzzah's death? Notice the effect. Again, the whole transportation process of the ark comes to a complete hold. In verse number 13, they take the ark aside to the house of Obed-Edom, and they don't take it any farther up to Jerusalem. Were the event an act of God upon, upon Uzzah alone, I 
I think that the root problem would have been corrected in that moment. People would have recognized it and they would have taken him aside and perhaps things would have continued. That maybe sounds insensitive to imagine, but if it were irrelevant to the process that they were undergoing, then I don't see why it would have an effect on their forward progress. So, but it was not simply corrective action against a single man. The Lord stopped everybody. He used this event to capture everyone's attention and say, stop. We have a problem. You're not going to go any further. So the problem wasn't then really Uzzah touching the ark so much as it was something about the procession that David put on as a whole. But what could possibly be wrong? I mean, if you look through everything, David had planned it out perfectly. God was being sought. God was being worshipped. God was being glorified. And every intention that went behind this whole procession, this whole project, was going according to plan, and the, the, right, the intention to do the right thing was there. So the question is then, why did David's good intentions seemingly result in God's punishment? You know, there's really only one reason. That's because David had desired to achieve God's result, or otherwise phrased as God's product, but he neglected to consult and then follow God's process. Again, somewhat somewhat piggybacking off of the, the principles that Pastor has been, has been preaching about in the last couple of weeks. Uh, there's, there's a biblical principle that clearly, you know, pr- clearly present throughout all of Scripture that outlines this point, and it's your desired product should determine the process you follow, because whatever process you follow will determine what your final product ends up becoming. And again, you know, credit to this idea was a series done by Pastor Wayne Hardy back home in in Stillwater, where he dealt with this principle out of Galatians 6 about sowing and reaping, and you know, specifically dealing with the understanding of that process that comes between sowing and reaping. You know, it's been such an immensely helpful principle to me personally, and it, it took me quite some time to really master putting it into practice, uh, and I honestly haven't. But um, I really wish I could rabbit trail off onto it, but I trust you've paid enough attention to at least what pastors preached in the last couple of weeks, that your, that your foundational understanding of it is there to a degree. You know, his, his, his principle and illustration, his message on parenting, and, you know, he's, he probably explained it a thousand times better than I possibly could. So, uh, but anyways, I take time to mention that because that's the very principle that we, that we see at play here, this, this process product principle. We, we took time to, to establish David's intentions and, and desires in this passion. I think we can all agree that there is no fault at all whatsoever in his desired product. It's not, you know, it's not only just a good desire, it was a godly one to give him credit. I mean, one can never go wrong in desiring more and more the presence of God. And that leads us to reason, then, that the fault which God so actively stood against was not in David's desired product, but then in the process which he took. So what was it that took David's actions outside of God's favor and blessings? It wasn't rebellion. It wasn't secret sin. It wasn't, anything that Dave, it wasn't anything like David believing that he knew better than God at all. Nope. Actually, it was a fault that is so subtle that David completely overlooked it without a single notice. You know, it's a fault that I think we're all extremely prone to, and it's likely one that we never think to check. The root of what had caused God to remove his seal of approval on David bringing the ark back up to Jerusalem was David's own pragmatism. The serious consequences that occurred at Uzzah's expense here were from a subtle mindset on David's part that, even at its core, really isn't necessarily negative either. 
The, the idea of pragmatism simply defined by uh, Webster's Dictionary is uh, a practical approach to problems and affairs. It seems reasonable. Nothing wrong with that. But in fact, pragmatism and, and practical thinking has contributed a lot to the, to the successes and advancements of, of the modern age and of, of mankind. And, and simply stated, a pragmatic person identifies an intended product or intended result and their course of action that they then take is based off of what's logical. It's just what makes sense. And again, there, there is nothing wrong with taking that approach to a variety of things. So then what's the issue here? You know, some may already know the answer if they're familiar with this story, and, and some may require a little more of an explanation. You turn over to, to chapter 15. We're going to read verses 1 and 2 to find our answer about what exactly it was that stood so much in the way. 1 Chronicles chapter 15, verse 1 and 2, it says, And David made him houses in the city of David, and prepared a place for the ark of God, and pitched for it a tent. Then David said, None ought to carry the ark of God but the Levites. For them hath the Lord chosen to carry the ark of God, and to minister unto him forever. So here we find that after, after three months, a shift has occurred in, in David's thinking here. And, and that clearly was not present the first time. You know, the process by which they were transporting the ark the first time was completely and totally wrong. The instructions David gives in verse 2 of chapter 15 is in, it's in reference to instructions that Moses gives the children of Israel in, in Exodus chapter 25 at the, at the very construction of the ark. And uh, it, said, it states very plainly to be carried on the shoulders by the, of, by the Levites by the use of the staves through rings in the side of the ark. The problem was the cart. So God's actions against Uzzah was not to draw attention to what Uzzah did in particular, but to draw attention to the problem of the cart. So why then didn't David see it the first time? You know, we might be inclined to think, you know, how could David have, have missed that? He's, again, he's the man after God's own heart. His relationship with God is like this, more so than anybody else in the Bible, it would seem. And I can think that I'd, I'd, I'd like to submit maybe the likeliest possibility that I can't prove necessarily 100% for sure from the text, but uh, I think it's safe enough of a conclusion to draw since, you know, I know myself and I know other people, and that would be this. You know, we've already discussed David's circumstances leading up to this point in his life, you know, the hardship, the, the difficulties, the toil, and the utter disappointments and the sorrow that he had to experience up until this point. And it, it wore on him to the point that he was conditioned to have a complete and total reliance upon God each and every day. That was where it benefited him. The conditions that he was in tempered him to increase his dependence on God because he was powerless to bring himself to the trials he faced in his own strength. But now, at this time, in this passage, it was the first time in a very long time that he was not living underneath those pressures. His life isn't in danger anymore. He's not being chased around the countryside and into different countries. He's not seeking refuge anymore. He's not living in caves and in forests. None of that. He's the king. He has God's hand of blessing on him. You know, every, everything, that, everything that's happened in the recent moments up until this point have, have been great. Things are going well. And I think David succumbed in his own way in the same fashion that many of us ourselves do, that when things started to pick up again, his guard lowered ever so slightly. And when his guard was down, it allowed a mindset of pragmatism to insert itself into his spiritual walk. Completely unnoticed. 
So David's use of the cart then was a manifestation of his subtle pragmatism. So the, the overall scheme of the process was in line with what would have been suitable in the eyes of God. You know, but seemingly the, the minor detail of how the ark was transported was what produced the disastrous consequences that they had to undergo. You know, and, and in my mind, just because I was raised to be pragmatic, it makes sense to me. I, I think it's defensible why the, a, a cart would be used from a logical standpoint. It would have kept the ark off the ground. It would have provided good protection for it had, had that procession been ambushed by enemies looking to get back at David for, for times past. It was new, so it would have had very sturdy construction. It would have had good structural integrity. And it could have been intended to reduce the amount of time that it took for the ark to get from Kirzatirim to Jerusalem. They could have taken a different route. It could have just been a faster mode of transport. So again, everything about this decision, I think David probably could have defended and it, logically, why that would have been a good idea. It seemed to make complete sense, but because there was no danger, and there was no pressure on David, and because everything was proceeding smoothly, God was not consulted about the process, and they completely missed the way he'd intended for it to be done. And not, not, to, their, not to their intention. It wasn't until three months later that David recognized the shift that needed to occur in his thinking before attempting to move the ark again. He took precautions to seek God's will in the matter, and he sought counsel, and he studied the law to determine God's mind on the process which he ought to take to bring the ark to Jerusalem. Read with me chapter 15, verses 11 through 13. It says, And David called for Zadok and Abiathar, the priests, and for the Levites, for Uriel, for Isaiah, and for Joel, and for Shemaiah, and for Eliel, and for Aminadab. And, unto them, ye, and said unto them, Ye are the chief of the fathers of the Levites. Sanctify yourselves, both ye and your brethren, that ye may bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel into the place that I have prepared for it. For because ye did it not at the first, the Lord our God made a breach upon us, for that we sought him not after the due order. See, it wasn't a, it wasn't a flaw in intentions. It wasn't, a, it wasn't a complete disregard for what God would have wanted it was simply this, they did not seek God after the due order. So after adjusting his thinking and reestablishing his process, here's what we find in verse 25 of chapter 15. So David and the elders of Israel and the captains over thousands went to bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord out of the house of Obed-Edom with joy. That was the end result. There wasn't anything significant that had to take place. That at the root of the problem that prevented them from getting the ark to Jerusalem the first time was a simple shift in mindset that had to occur. So then I guess the question would be, then what's, what's the danger? What was the danger to pragmatism in David's pursuit of God's product? Well, there, there were tremendous consequences, as we, as we read, that, were, that you know, occurred after not following God's due process of order. A man had lost his life. That, that's pretty significant. But, but what was the danger to David personally? What, what effect did pragmatism have in his spiritual life? And, and what, what effect did it have on his relationship with the Lord? You know, if you turn back over to chapter 13, look with me in verses 10 and 11. It says, And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and he smote him because he put his hand to the ark, and there he died before the Lord. And David was displeased. Displeased. Because the Lord had made a breach upon Uzzah, wherefore that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And displeased is kind of a weird word to me. It doesn't, in the English language to me, like if someone says they're displeased, I imagine someone 
who went through the drive-thru and they forgot to leave the pickles off your sandwich. I mean, that's displeased to me. But, you know, this isn't, this, this isn't exactly that, that idea that's being carried over by the use of this word. You know, the, the Hebrew word that, that here that gets translated to displeased is actually the exact same word in the verse previous when it says the Lord's anger was kindled against Uzzah. It gives the impression of, of growing hot, to blaze up, to flare up, usually in the context of, of anger. And David wasn't simply confused. He wasn't displeased. He was mad. He was angry. And all the other times in Scripture where we find David in a situation where he's seeking an answer from God, you know, it's out of a spirit of confidence or, or, or affliction or, or of repentance, but not this time. And I think I think here we find the first and perhaps the only time recorded in the scripture that David was mad at God. He was angry. And th that, that right there puts them seemingly in complete and total opposition to each other at this particular moment in time. And later we find that when the anger subsides, all that then is left is, is fear and, and confusion over what he should do next. He says to himself, how shall I bring the ark of God home to me? He, he's at a loss. So, Subtle was the oversight on David's part that it compromised his emotions and his ability to question himself instead of saying, God, show us what went wrong. And for a brief moment of time, he pointed his finger at God and said, God, how could you? I can't believe you'd do this to me. And the subtle danger and resulting consequences of David's pragmatism cost him more than the life of Uzzah, but it affected his relationship with God to the point that a full three months goes by where absolutely zero progress is made to bring the ark back to Jerusalem. And it isn't until David finally corrects his mindset that he's able then to complete this process. So now comes the question then, what difference does this make to me? You know, what, what does this look like for us today? And, and for an application, I guess to, to give you an example, I'd like to give you my own personal example of a hard lesson that I had to learn in pragmatism. And I, there's, there's risks to giving giving your own failures from the pulpit as it might discredit what you're saying, but I, I really think that, that a, a personal example is going to really help you see just how subtle these things were because it shocked me how subtle the change was. And th this message actually in particular grew out in a way uh, that God was working in my life in the recent years and even coming into the, just a couple of months before I came back up. So, so I'm called to preach. I'm up here doing that right now. I've never been more certain about anything in my life other than that this is what I'm supposed to do for the rest of my life. And, and I'm not exactly all that great at it. Um, I can't always remember what it is that I want to say, and so sometimes I refer to my notes, and I'm, I'm, I'm not able to engage people as much as I'd like to, and there's a lot of areas that I need to practice in, and I like to chase rabbit trails and, and go on a thousand other points rather than get to the main one. But regardless, I have a burden and a passion to see God's word preached. Because it has the power, again, to change people in a way that I really haven't ever seen a person do for themselves. And, and because of that call, because of that passion, what, what happened when I was in high school, and while, while Pastor was my youth pastor, you know, I, I felt a call, okay, if, if this is the call in my life, then I ought strongly consider go to Bible college. Because I desired the training to be in the ministry and, and learn how to be a help to people in the service of God. And that, that right there, that's my intended product. But somewhere along the lines, pragmatism crept in unaware as I was undergoing that process. And I started making adjustments to the process itself. See, I'm not, I'm not a bad student. You know, school was never difficult for me growing up. I passed classes fairly easily in high school. And, uh, 
you know, I, I tr and academics aren't difficult for me. I try to be pretty well learned in a, in, a, in a broad scope of subjects because my intention is to be able to hold a conversation with just about anybody, but I also place values on knowledge based upon the applicability of what it is that I think I'm going to do. So when things were going well at school with my job, I was getting well paid, I was doing well in school at the time, spirit of pragmatism found its way in my approach to the process of preparation at school, and I allowed myself to determine what was important over what God had already determined was important. And so I could do, I, I figured in my own mind that, well, I only have so much time that I can give to certain things. And, and I know that I need to work, and I need to do well in school, and these classes are important, but these classes don't seem quite as important. And so I started making exchanges in my mind, thinking, you know, if I'm going to be a wise investor of my time, you know, I can do, I can, you know, get by with making decent grades in this class, and giving more time to work, or to making money, or to do better in these other classes. And, and so I did, I did well in the classes that I saw as important, and, and dialed back some of the effort in the ones that I considered less so. And uh, I, I used that extra time then that freed up in my schedule to work more and, and try, to, try to earn some more money that I could put away, so that way I wasn't I wasn't put in a position where I feel like I'd have to leave school because of financial difficulties or, or things like that. I, I had every good intention by, by working these things around in my mind. And as a result, you know, there were some potential setbacks that I've created for myself, and I temporarily halted my forward progress in the process through which God put me in a Bible college. And... I don't mean to say that, again, to, to discredit anything that I'm trying to say. It's just, it's a, it's a hard lesson, unfortunately, that I had to learn. My failure to put my best efforts into the things that God determined was important, failing to seek God's will and how he would have me use my time, rather than figure out how I was going to use it myself. There's some costs that even now I'm having to work through, and I don't quite know exactly how it turns up. But I say that specifically because, unfortunately, I can only paint you from this from this passage and from the principle that we've gleaned from it, so many general pictures to, to cover most of the bases in this room. And so the next best thing I could think of to show you was, was how it applied in my life in particular. But, but as, I, as I perhaps give you some examples here, I, I, want you to, I want you to do some critical thinking in your own thought processes as I give you some. And perhaps the Lord can reveal something to you and, and that I would never have been able to because of my limited knowledge of it. So my intention with this passage is to reveal parallels to how this situation could have potentially arise in your life in the coming weeks. It's only been a few months or so, but, you know, COVID has become such a household term that it's absolutely disgusting, yeah. and everybody hates it. <laughs> and we, we all agree that, that it is at the point right now that it's largely just nothing more than a nuisance to how effectively things get done every day. And, you know, we, we look forward to it being over, and we look forward to things getting better. And that time in particular is what this message here is, is more or less intended to target. See, the, the coronavirus and resulting months of quarantine have, have been quite the emotional roller coaster for some people, as I've, I've, as I've come to hear firsthand or perhaps through other people. I've heard some pretty, pretty devastating stories that people have had to endure just because of the setbacks that this has created. You know, a lot of hardships, a lot of trials, burdens, and, and strains. In some family lives, it resulted in a loss of income, and like Pastor said, loss of jobs even. Financial stresses and burdens came up that were completely and totally unexpected. And for, for others, their relationships have taken a hit. 
You know, there's, there's an element to wanting to be together as a family, but, you know, with that increased exposure to one another, it's almost like things became more strained as you're trying to live every day with these people, and you get irritable, you get, you get tense, you know, spouses become, become tense and, and argue, children become more and more rebellious just because of the general restraints that are being imposed on them because of the whole ordeal. And new challenges arose that got a lot of people by surprise. And it produced a lot of side effects from when it was spreading on force. But there will be a day when it's all over, fortunately. There's a saying goes that there's nowhere left to go but up from here. And I don't know if we've quite hit the bottom of the whole pandemic yet, but eventually we are going to reach a point in time where things are going to look up. And even if there are still challenges to come, inevitably, you know, you know jobs are going to return. The finances are going to stabilize. Normal family dynamics are going to resume. And, and, you know, it will be as though life is as it should be. But like we said before, there's a danger in these ups. So just like, just like the freedom and relief that David felt perhaps when the days of difficulty were, were put behind him, you know, there's going to be a point in time in the lives of each and every person in this room, they're going to look, it's going to look better than it has in quite a while. You know, the jobs are going to return to normal. Income returns to normal. Attitudes return to normal. Peace of mind returns to normal. And, and because of that, you're going to have goals in your mind that, that you, as, as you pull out of this, you're going to have given some thought to like, okay, what, what is it that I want to push forward to? What is a product that I have in mind coming out of this that I want to start giving myself to? And I'd, give everyone nearly the, I'd give nearly everyone, again, the benefit of the doubt that you know, these, these are intended products that God would want some people to have. And he's going to honor and bless them should we desire them. You know, the, being a better steward of your finances, um, rebuilding a strained relationship, raising godly children, you know, even being in church every service. You know, examples of good godly goals, again, that are going to honor the Lord, but there's a subtle danger that can sneak in unawares from the high strings of successes. See, when, when, you're not dependent, when, you, when you aren't dependent on God to take care of you financially like you were, when you were wondering if you'd even keep your job, if your job would even be there tomorrow, you know, pragmatism is going to find its way to stick its foot in the door. You, know, you, can, you can do what's logical. It makes all the sense in the world to follow every principle to save and to scrape and to, to make good financial decisions. You can budget and you can save, you can invest, you can get stocks, you can get mutual funds. There are all these steps that you can take to ensure good financial success and be a good financial steward of your resources. And, and again, there, there's biblical principles that can also back these things up that are good, godly things to do with your money. But what if to make a certain investment, that requires you to postpone your tithe giving? You know, or perhaps you receive a promotion or, or a job offer, which is going to give you more financial security than you've ever had, but maybe at the small exchange of missing church more frequently. You know, you can still just live stream it, can't you? Because it makes, it makes sense to us that if God wants us to be good financial stewards, that we ought to do what we can in our power to ensure that we're responsible for our money and the opportunities that come our way make sense because that, that to take those as they come because, because it, we, can, we intend to give more. And, and in the midst of, all, of it all making sense, we can overlook the seemingly minor details that God specifically outlines in his process, and that would be faithful church attendance and tithe giving. Now, given the report, obviously, that Pastor gave earlier, I, I wouldn't say that that's so much uh, a struggle right now. People have been very faithful to do that. But again, looking forward, as things are coming up, as things are getting out, you know, things are going to return to normal. And I really, want, I really want this to stick in people's minds that the danger is when things are going to start to look up. 
when you have more control over the situation, it feels like. You know, again, maybe referencing some of Pastor's messages on parenting that he's preached, you know, you, wanna, you want your kids to grow up and you want them to follow your leadership so that they can become who God wants them to be. You know, you want your spouse to be on board with you in the direction you feel that God is leading your family. And you know that in order to, for them to, to have the influence that you need in order to guide them and to help them to grow, you need to earn their respect. And logically, then, respected people often tend to follow the trends that they're the ones who are most liked. It's, honestly, that's the natural way that that works. So perhaps overlooking negligent Bible reading or, or making concessions in certain areas like entertainment or, or clothing choices, that they'll not only see you as a parent, but they'll come to see you as their friend. And then, at that point, you're, you're going to be able to have more of that influence on them because you've earned their respect, you've earned their trust, and, and you'll let the minor details work themselves out. You know logically, perhaps, that a certain decision is what's best for your family, and it falls in line with what you believe is the right thing to do. But communicating isn't as important as just leading, so at some point they're going to understand what you were doing and that it was in their best interest. So in any general sense, I know that those are kind of vague examples and maybe, maybe specific for some and not specific for others, but you can have, the idea is that you can have all these ideas and desires to pursue what you believe God would have for you to accomplish in the coming days, and all the while in the effort to move forward, seemingly minor details of God's processes can get overlooked because what was logical was chosen over what was best. And there can and likely will be consequences to pragmatism in the following and following the process of God's product. Really, the takeaway truth that I wanted to, that I wanted to uh, emphasize tonight, again, is that if we fail to consult God's process in pursuit of God's product, God removes his hand of blessing from it. You know, don't let the good feelings of the up seasons determine God's will on the matter. Allow God to determine God's will on the matter. You know, how, how am I going to know then what, what's God's processes versus what, you know, what I feel, what I feel? You know, feelings can be a guide. That's what they're meant for. But they're not the conclusive factor. There is a due order that we read about which has to be followed. First, I would suggest consulting God's word. You know, it, it, it's a common expression that holds true to this day. God's will never comes. God's will will never contradict God's word. And as cliche as that sounds to say, it's because it's a timeless truth. And so even if a decision is logical, I, I, I highly suggest, even if it's a minor detail, consult God's word on it. See what his mind is about it. What are some of the guiding principles and similar examples in scripture where you can, uh, that are similar into the situation you find yourself? Second, I would suggest consult godly counsel. The benefit of having godly individuals around you not only for the sake of accountability, but perhaps a different perspective on things than you would have otherwise. You know, perhaps in seeking counsel, you can learn from those who've already experienced the successes or experienced the failures and struggles in following God's process. Protect yourself from setting yourself up from an upset. Don't allow the ups and successes of the coming days to allow you to let your guard down even a little bit. Let your, be diligent in, speaking, in seeking God's mind on every detail even if it seems insignificant. And, and don't allow yourself to just throw things into the cart. And God gave us the blessing to be able to reason out the solutions to our situations, but in fervent prayer and in counsel and consulting God's word, keep seeking the Lord after the due order. Let's pray. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.